You are listening to a podcast by Spring Hill Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. Spring Hill Church is called to reach everyday people with God's grace, His unconditional love, and the life-changing power of His Word. Thanks for listening, and if you would like more information, you can visit us online at springhill.cc. All right, y'all. Well, let's pray, and let's get started tonight, and um, let's get into the Word. Amen. Father, thank you for our time together tonight. Lord, I thank you once again for all of these precious people that uh, take of their time to receive from you, to be fed from the Word of God. And Father, we just ask you tonight to, by the Holy Spirit, to cause revelation to flow freely. I believe, Father, that we all will be taught, that we all will receive insight into your Word. Father, I thank you that our lives will be changed because of it, and our lives will be better. Father, I thank you that by the time we're done tonight, our faith is going to be greater that we're going to know more about you and know uh, how to walk with you in a greater way. And so, Lord, I thank you for that. Father, I believe in Jesus' name that each and every one of us, myself included, we make a determined purpose, Father, to not just be hearers of the word, but to be doers of it as well. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is week number 11 in our series on spiritual warfare, and I feel pretty confident that we'll uh, we'll wrap this up tonight, uh, this series, and then we'll start on something new next week. So uh, if you want to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6, and uh, you can be looking there, and uh, I'll catch up with you in just a second. Let me again review the points that we've always been talking about um, as we've gone through this series And uh, that is this, always remember that the real battle with Satan was won at the cross and in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we have to keep that mindset. We always have to approach spiritual warfare from a place of already having obtained the victory instead of we're trying to get the victory. And actually, that's the approach we ought to have in every aspect of of our walk with the Lord is that we're not trying to, to gain the victory. We already have the victory. The victory is already ours. And so all we have to do is, is walk in it, receive it, walk in it, and then uh, remind the enemy that he is already defeated. And so we've been saying that there are three different aspects to spiritual warfare. The first one is dealing with your mind, uh, renewing your mind with the word of God. The second one is, as Paul says, we need to crucify our flesh. In other words, we need to deny our flesh the things that it wants and craves that are not godly. And then thirdly, after we've done those two, then we deal directly with with the devil himself. Now, the good news is, if you take care of those first two, uh, dealing with him personally is going to be very minimal. Uh, because again, as we've been saying, when you deal with your mind and you deal with your flesh, you've cut off his access or, or points of access into your life. In other words, you're making life very hard for him. And so that's what we need to do anyway. And so you're there in Ephesians chapter six. Let's read verses 10 through 18. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so Paul, again, I'm reading from the New King James. It says this. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. 
put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles or the trickery or schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. I want to just, I, something came up in my thinking, uh, the first part of that verse, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. You know, one of the things that we need to always remember, um, and I'll tell you a little story real quick. Uh, back in 1983, when I was leaving Tulsa and coming back to Charlotte, I was going to uh, be entering into a, a volunteer position uh, at a church here in Charlotte back then. And so I had a meeting with one of the pastors at the church that I was going to in Tulsa and uh, was just picking his brain for, for ministry help and things like that. And one of the things I still remember this to this day that he told me was if you ever have difficulties with someone on your team, like another staff member or something along that line, don't ever deal with it in the flesh. Always deal with it in the spirit. And that would be true with uh, any conflict that we have. Now, sometimes you have to deal with it in the natural and understand that. But what I want us to understand is first, deal with it spiritually. Deal with it in prayer, okay? And so that's why Paul said, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, not bits and pieces, the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. Now, to withstand means to endure. And then he says, once you've done that, having done all, stand. And then he said, stand therefore, having gird your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all of the fiery darts of the wicked one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Verse 18, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit, being watchful to this end, with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. And so uh, it, the good news is that God has not left us to face our enemy uh, without any power, without any authority, without any uh, weaponry. We have everything that we need in order to enforce the defeat that Jesus bought and paid for us. We are fully equipped, but it's up to us to put it on it's up to us to walk in it, all right? So uh, we've been talking about there are seven pieces to the armor that's listed here. Uh, there are three defensive weapons, three offensive weapons, and one neutral part of the armor. The neutral piece is what we have talked about early on, and that was the loin belt of truth. That's what holds everything together, the Word of God is what holds everything together. Then the three defensive weapons are the breastplate, the shield, and the helmet. The three offensive weapons are our shoes, the armor that's part of our shoes, the sword, 
And then what we're going to talk about tonight, that is the lance, L-A-N-C-E. So these are the weapons that will enable us to be able to enforce the enemy's defeat. You need to understand something about him. He's persistent and he's hard-headed. He knows he's defeated. He's hoping that you don't fully know that. And uh, so he, he and he's hard-headed from the standpoint of it takes convincing. We've got to convince him. And the way that we do that is by standing on the word of God. Now, let's talk about this last weapon of our warfare called the lance. Now, the lance, somebody said, well, I don't remember seeing that in there. It's there, and I'll explain in just a second. Although it's not mentioned by name in the text in Ephesians, it is clearly included, all right? So let me show you what a lance looks like uh, in the Roman armor. Let me show you this picture. So if you'll see, you have a Roman soldier standing here. This thing that is in his left hand that looks like a spear, it, that is the lance. That is what is called a lance. And there were different sizes of lances that a Roman soldier might use. Some of them would be long. Some of them would be short. Uh, let me show you another one so you can better see it. Here's an example of one of the longer ones. You see this soldier standing out there, and he's got one, a lance that is clearly taller than he is. And let me show you one of the shorter ones and uh, let you see how that works. Uh, here's a soldier that's using it, getting ready to throw it, okay, as you would, as you would imagine, a spear would be thrown. And then lastly, there is the soldier carrying a shorter one. Uh, it's not much shorter, but it a little bit uh, to show you what it looks like. Now, notice it has a, the handle on it that he would hold, but notice this part right here is very small, very thin, with a very sharp point on the top of it. So this is what the Roman armor or the Roman soldier used, and it was called the lance. Now, somebody said, again, I don't see that in these verses. Well, look at verse 18. When Paul said this, he said, take a, after he's listed all of the armor, the last thing he says is verse 18, praying always with all prayer and supplication. What the Holy Spirit was doing was using the illustration of that lance is equivalent to our prayers and supplication. Now, I'm going to define those for you in just a moment. So this is a powerful tool that when we thrust it forward into the spirit realm, it causes great things to happen at, on the works of the enemy. By forcibly hurling this divine instrument in the face of the enemy, you exercise the power that God has given you to stop major obstacles from developing in your life. Now, what the Roman soldier would do with the lance is he had a choice. He could use that long one, and he could throw it at his enemy and try and hit them, or he could carry one that was a little bit shorter. And, uh, you know, if you're dealing with a lance that is, let's say, six or seven feet long, you can advance on the enemy and, and jab it into the enemy, and you're still far enough away where the enemy can't really do anything to you, okay? So 
what would happen is uh, the, the soldier would throw this at the enemy or would gouge the enemy with it. And then when the enemy was wounded and down, the Roman soldier would take out his sword and run and, and run upon his enemy and finish the enemy off, usually by uh, cutting off his head or, or just wounding him mortally with his sword. So this lance was designed to be used at a distance from the enemy in order to uh, mortally wound the enemy or to gain an upper hand so that when the advance was made, the soldier could take care of the enemy once and for all. Now, just a little side note, if you'll remember, just make a note of these verses in John chapter 19, verses 33 and 34. Let me read these scriptures to you. It, uh, this is when Jesus is hanging on the cross. He's already died. He's already cried out and, and uh, told the Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And he's breathed his last. And if you'll recall, uh, the, the soldiers would go around, and if they found someone that was still alive, they would break their legs so they could no longer pull themselves up to, to breathe. And so once they would break their legs, they couldn't lift themselves up. So literally, the person that was being crucified would suffocate hanging on the cross. Well, they came to Jesus and found out Jesus was already dead. But just to make sure, it says, but when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs, which, by the way, fulfills a prophecy from the Old Testament. In verse 34, it says, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. So it wasn't uh, what we imagine a traditional spear with a wide blade on it. It was one of these lances. He just reached up there and uh, ran that lance into Jesus' side. And of course, out came the blood and the water. So we see that this was a very common instrument. Now, Let's go back to Ephesians 6, 18. It says, praying always. Now, notice this, praying always with all prayer. Now, in the NIV version, it says this, and this is where it's correctly translated. Pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. Now, what we need to understand, and again, uh, as we talked about Sunday a little bit, um, we need to be skillful in these things. And so if we're going to be skillful in prayer, we must understand, understand that there is more than one kind of prayer. There are actually, what we're going to talk about tonight, seven kinds of prayer. And what we've done, the mistake that we've made in the body of Christ is that we've gone into every situation um, and thinking that you know, a, one particular type of prayer covers everything. We've prayed in that situation with only one prayer, type of prayer, and we haven't been getting the results that God wants us to get. And so we're going to look at that. So again, praying always with all kinds of prayer and supplication in the Spirit. So God has made many kinds of prayer available to us for different purposes in our fight of faith. So just as the Roman soldier had the short lance for thrusting into his enemy at close range, nothing can compare to the prayer of faith spoken in authority in the name of Jesus. But 
just as the Roman soldier had a long lance to hurl at his enemy from a great distance, we have the weapon of intercession where we can pray for someone to thwart an enemy attack in our lives or in someone else's life even before it occurs. So there's different purposes to these different types of prayer, all right? So we're going to look at these different types of prayer uh, tonight. So make a note of this. We simply cannot maintain a victorious position apart from a life of prayer. We must have a deep life of prayer if we're going to walk in victory as believers. Okay, now what I want to encourage you to do sometime is go through the Gospels, and, and you can do this fairly quickly, but go through the Gospels and pay attention to the number of times that it's noted that Jesus spent time in prayer. You know, a lot of times he would go into a situation or he told the religious leaders, he said, I don't do anything except I first see the Father do it. And I don't say anything unless I first hear the Father say it. Well, where did he see and hear those things? Well, he heard and saw them during his times of prayer. The Bible says that very often Jesus would go off and while the disciples were asleep, he would either get up very early before daylight in the morning and spend time in prayer. Sometimes he would pray all night long. Sometimes he would send the disciples off, you know, in the daytime after they had finished ministering so that he could spend some time in prayer, and then he would catch up with them later. So we see in Jesus our model uh, of a life of prayer, and that's what helped to equip him to be uh, successful like he was. And so, yes, Jesus has already won the victory, as we've already said every week through his death, burial, and resurrection, but it is our responsibility to enforce and maintain that victory. Here's something else you need to understand. God is not going to fight your battles for you in the sense of he's not going to do your work. You know, the Bible says that Jesus called the Holy Spirit our helper. He helps us. He doesn't do it for us. He does his part, but when it comes time for us to do our part, we still have our part to play. Now, he will help us with our part, but he's not going to do both, your part and his part, all right? So how often should we pray? Well, look at the verse 18. Uh, what are the first two words there in verse 18? Pray always, praying always. Praying always. Well, that pretty much sums it up, okay? But the, the Greek language there it actually says this, pray every time or every opportunity or every chance that you get. That's what that means. Literally, he knows, the Holy Spirit knows that you have things to do. You know, if you work a job or whatever the case is, uh, you should be praying while you're getting paid to work, okay? But there are times when we can be spending time in prayer when the opportunities are made available to us. So Paul is telling us anytime you get a chance, no matter where you are or what you're doing, at every opportunity and every season, seize the time to pray. Okay. So, and I'll say this to you, it's not going to be convenient. 
Sometimes you're not going to feel like doing it, but take the time, seize that time to do it anyway. So prayer is not optional for the Christian who is serious about his spiritual life. If you're serious about walking in victory and living the life that God wants us to live, then prayer is not going to be an option for you. All right. Now let's talk about the, the seven types of prayer. All right. Now I'll list them for you first, and then we'll go in and we'll define each one. Number one is the prayer of consecration. Consecration, not concentration, consecration. Okay. Prayer of consecration. Number two is the prayer of petition. That sometimes, and you could write in parentheses besides petition, put faith, prayer faith. Number three is the prayer of faith and authority or, or authority. So this is a little bit different. Uh, you're praying from a place of authority. We'll talk about that in just a moment. Number four is the prayer of thanksgiving. Number five is the prayer of supplication. Number six is the prayer of intercession. And number seven is the prayer of worship. Now, I'm going to do my best to cover all seven of these tonight. But uh, let's get into this here. Number one, the prayer of consecration. So what's interesting is for prayer, this word is used 127 times in the New Testament. The, the, the Greek word used for prayer, translated prayer here, uh, is used 127 times. And it, it literally means this, to get face to face with God in your prayer. All right. Now, why would we need to do that? Why would we need to have a uh, face-to-face prayer with God? Well, it's a, it's an intimate level of prayer. All right. So really this type of prayer, and the reason it's called the prayer of consecration is because you are dedicating and committing yourself in a face-to-face -face conversation with God to surrender your will to his will. You are surrendering your life to him. You're, you're dedicating yourself to fulfill his will, plan, and purpose in your life. So what you're doing is you're going before God face to face, and you're surrendering your life in exchange for his you're consecrating your life on an ongoing basis. Now, one thing that makes this prayer different from some of the others is um, you can pray this prayer every day, many times a day if you want to, and it doesn't undo your faith. This is not the prayer of faith. So, you know, you can wake up every day and pray this prayer. Say, Lord, I dedicate myself to your will I, I uh, commit my life to you afresh and anew today and uh, want to fulfill your purpose in my life. You know, this was the kind of prayer that Jesus prayed when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane in Matthew, the 26th chapter, in the 39th verse. 
where if you'll remember, he took Peter, James, and John with him into a little further into the garden. And the Bible says that he went off and he prayed three times. And he said this, oh, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. What was he doing? He knew what was coming. He knew that his purpose was to die on the cross. And, and, and naturally, no human being would look forward to that. No human being would be excited about that. And notice even Jesus himself said, if there is any other way for this to happen, the plan of redemption, if there's any other way, nevertheless, he said, not as I will, but as you will. In other words, uh, if I had my choice, we wouldn't do it this way, but I'm surrendering my will, my choice to you, and I'm willing to carry out your plan in this. So the prayer of consecration, some people call it the prayer of dedication, is where we are committing ourselves on a regular basis to fulfill God's will in our lives, to fulfill God's plan in our lives. And, you know, Jesus, again, being the great model and example that he is, you know, nobody would want to or, or feel like, if you will, going to the cross. Uh, but yet he surrendered his will and went anyway. He surrendered his will to the Father and paid the price for us. So, you know, in the New Testament, when you read about crucifying the flesh and you read about, um, you know, consider yourself dead to sin, what, what those references really mean is the cross to Jesus represented surrender, total surrender to God's will for his life. And so when we talk about crucifying the flesh, what we're saying is totally surrendering our flesh and crucifying our flesh and fulfilling the will, plan, and purpose of God for our lives, okay? So that's what the prayer of consecration is all about. So again, you can pray this prayer as many times and as often as you want to, okay? Now, let's go to number two, the prayer of petition. So the Greek word for petition here, or pr pr this prayer, is the Greek word desis, and it's spelled D-E-E-S-I-S, D-E-E-S-I-S, and this has to do with praying to the Father about your basic spiritual or physical needs that must be met for a person to continue in your existence. In other words, this is the prayer, and oftentimes this is called the prayer of faith because we pray, we ask, we pray in faith, and we believe that we receive our answer. Now, the reason I'm not calling it the prayer of faith is uh, Rick Renner in his book uh, made a little differentiation, and, and, uh, and I like the way he differentiated it in using the prayer of faith in the next type of prayer. But this type of prayer is when we have a need, and Jesus said in Mark eleven twenty four that whoever, whosoever, uh, or when you pray, believe that you receive the answer, and then you'll have the answer. So this is the prayer of faith. Now, the difference between this prayer and the prayer of consecration is 
you pray this prayer one time. Okay. So when you ask God to meet your needs, you ask one time and you ask in faith. If you ask again, you've undone what you did in praying in faith. Okay. Because to ask repeatedly for the same thing is not faith. Now, somebody says, well, then what do I do after I have prayed the prayer of petition or the prayer of faith? Then after that prayer is complete, then you move over to the prayer we'll talk about in a little bit, the prayer of thanksgiving, where you're thanking God that the need is met. You're thanking God that he heard your prayer. You're thanking God that you believe that you receive the answer. So you don't harbor or stay on the prayer of petition, okay? Now, there is something deeper about this word, desis, that I want to share with you, and, and that is this. This prayer, the prayer of petition, really, is a prayer of humility. And the reason it's a prayer of humility is because we're expressing to God our utter dependence on Him, okay? So this prayer of petition is where we're saying, Lord, I lean totally on you. I pray uh, and believe you because without you, I have nothing and I am nothing, all right? But I pray and I believe that you hear my prayer and that the, the need is already met and the answer is already mine, all right? Now, what's interesting, let me show you a couple of verses in the scriptures real quick. Uh, just make a note of this, Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 and 8. Now, remember, this prayer is where you're expressing your dependency on God, okay? So it says in Hebrews 5, 7, and 8 that Jesus, in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear or reverence. Now, what's that saying? You know, there were many attempts on Jesus' life before he went to the cross. You know, you'll read in the Gospels where uh, they pushed him over to the side of a, a cliff, and we're going to throw him off the cliff. And the Bible says that he passed right through the middle of the crowd and was safe and sound. And, uh, you know, so we have to assume that there were other uh, people or opportunities where people uh, wanted to take Jesus' life, particularly the religious leaders, in order to silence him. And what's interesting to me about this scripture, it says that in the days of his flesh or during his earthly ministry, he offered up prayers and supplications and uh, to God who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his holy reverence. Now, what's interesting to me about this is Jesus did not escape death in his earthly ministry prior to the cross because he was some kind of arrogant person that could just pass through the crowd. No, he had laid the groundwork for his protection and for his safety by going in those times of prayer that I mentioned earlier and praying and expressing his utter dependence on God. And so he knew God was able to protect him and to keep him safe. And so what he did is he leaned totally on God 
expressed his utter dependence on God, and that was what kept him until the time where he knew it was time for him to go to the cross. Let me say it to you this way. Jesus said this, no man takes my life unless I first lay it down, all right? In other words, until Jesus was ready and the Father was ready, nobody was going to be able to take his life anyway, all right? And, and that was established during those times of prayer. See, we need we have a misbelief about Jesus and that he was some kind of Superman, all right? Now, he, he, you know, I'm not taking anything away from him, but you need to understand that when he was in his earthly life and ministry, he had to function exactly like you have to function. In other words, he did not receive the things that he received because he was the son of God. He received the things that he received and walked in what he walked in because of the times of prayer and times of preparation that he spent in the spirit prior to encountering those things, okay? Which is exactly what you and I have to do. And a lot of times, you know, folks just make the assumption that Jesus just did what he did because he was Jesus. No, he did what he was did. He did what he did because he uh, walked in his life as a child or as a son of God just like you can walk and live as a child of God. All right, just wanted to explain that. Now, a couple of different references where this word is used is Philippians 4.6. Make a note of that. Philippians 4.6, this is where Paul said, don't be anxious for anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. That's this word, desis. In Luke chapter 1, in verse 13, where Zechariah and Elizabeth have been praying for a baby, the Bible says uh, that they had been praying, and so that word prayer is the Greek word desis there. Now, just a little side note, you remember when the angel appeared, when Gabriel appeared to Zechariah while he was in the temple ministering, doing the incense and so forth, the angel appeared to him and told him, God has heard your prayers and you're going to have a son, okay? Well, I, I, and I've shared this with you before, but it, it rang truer with me when I understood this Greek word. Zacharias and Elizabeth were praying with heartfelt, deep prayers, asking God for a son, all right? But when the angel shows up and says, God's heard your prayers. You're going to have your son. Zechariah's response was, well, how in the world is that going to happen? Okay. Well, the, the angel said, okay, I'll tell you how it's not going to happen. You're going to, you're going to have to zip your lip for nine months. And that's exactly what happened. Zechariah could no longer talk for nine months until Elizabeth had the baby. All right. So what's my point is don't waste your time in this uh, Desus kind of prayer if you're not believing that God has heard your prayer and that he's going to answer your prayer, all right? So just thought I'd mention that. Okay, so let's go on. Here's number three is this prayer of authority, prayer of authority or faith, however you want to say it. It's a little different than this prayer petition, okay? Now, 
This is the Greek word translated prayer, and it's spelled A-I-T-E-O. Iteo. It's used 80 times in the New Testament, and it's translated either ask, or it means rather, ask or demand. Demand. Now that's gutsy to think that you can make a demand of God, but there are times when that is the word that's used in the Greek language. What this word describes is someone who prays with authority. And the only way that you're going to be able to pray with authority is two things. Number one, knowing who you are in Christ. And number two, being confident in your relationship with God. Okay? So you're, the, the, the authority that we have in the Lord Jesus is very powerful, but it will go no further than your confidence and assurance in your relationship with God. Okay. In other words, if there's a question mark in the back of your mind of, is God upset with me? Or does God really love me? Or is God mad at me because I did this? Or, or, or you know, because of something that I did in my past or something along that line, it's going to hinder your being able to operate in the authority that Jesus has given you. So you're going to have to have both of those working together the authority in Jesus' name, and the confidence of your relationship with the Father. Now, John chapter 15 and verse 7. Let's go look at that real quick. John chapter 15 and verse 7. John 15 verse 7. So, Jesus said this in John 15, 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. Now the word ask there is this Greek word, iteo. Now here's what I, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stretch you just a little bit here. All right. So let's 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 switch that word. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask or demand what you desire and it shall be done for you. Now somebody says, see a, re a religious person would have a hard time with that. Why I can't make any demands on God. You can if it's in his word. If he's already promised it to you, if Jesus has already bought and paid for it, it belongs to you, okay? So, and then the other thing is, when it says you will ask what you desire, uh, can I say it in plain English? You can ask what you want. Now, see, there's that'll fly, fly in the face of some religious folks as well. Oh, you, God's not interested in meeting our wants or our desires. no. He, if he isn't, then Jesus lied right here, okay? And Jesus isn't a liar, all right? So Jesus said, uh, you will ask what you desire, and it will be done for you. Now, the catch is, the caveat, if you will, is if you're abiding in him and his word is abiding in you. Now, what that means is 
If you're abiding in him and his word is abiding in you, then your will and your desires are going to be in line with him and his word. Okay. So, so Jesus isn't necessarily giving us a blank check where we can just go and make demands of the father for whatever. No, if you're abiding in him and his word is abiding in you, you're going to be confident of what God's will is for your life. Okay. And you can walk in that. All right. So when we allow the word of God to permanently and habitually lodge in our hearts, that word so transforms our minds that when we pray, we do so in accordance with God's will. It almost becomes automatic. Okay. Now go over with me to 1 John chapter 5, over towards the, the end of the, the New Testament. 1 John chapter 5, and this word is used here as well. 1 John chapter 5, 14 and 15. It says this, now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask or demand anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask or demand, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. Okay? Bold prayers. These are bold, authoritative prayers. These are not prayers that you pray apologetically. Okay? These are prayers where you know that you know that you know it is God's will for me to have this. In other words, uh, you know, when you take healing, for instance, healing has been bought and paid for. Jesus paid for it. It belongs to us. Matter of fact, God's done everything he's going to do to get you healed by what Jesus did on the cross. So when we know that and we have confidence in that, we can make a demand on the healing power of God and receive healing in our bodies. Okay. Now I made mention to you, I believe it was last week or the week before, uh, some examples from the old Testament of this type of bold praying. And David prayed some bold prayers. Just, I'm, I'm going to give you the references, just write them down and then you can look at them later. Psalm, the, Psalm 4 and verse 1, Psalm 4 and verse 1 David said this, hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have relieved me in my distress. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. In other words, can I say this? In modern English, we'd say this. Hey, listen to me. Okay. Psalm uh, 17 and verse 1. David said this, hear a just cause, O Lord. Attend to my cry. Give attention to what I'm telling you, Lord. Give ear to my prayer, which is not from deceitful lips. Psalm 39, verse 12. David said this, Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Do not be silent at my tears, for I am a stranger with you, a sojourner, as all my fathers were. So David knew 
I, okay, God, listen to what I'm telling you and answer my prayers. Psalm 54, verse 2, David said, hear my prayer, O God, give ear to the words of my mouth. Psalm 61, verse 1, David said this, hear my cry, O God, attend to my prayer, give attention to my prayer. When was the last time you said, hey, God, I need you to listen to me. I'm praying right now, and I need you to give your attention to what I'm telling you. Probably none of us have, all right? But that's what David was doing. Now, how can you do that? Well, first of all, you got to know who you are in Christ, that you are righteous in God's eyes. That's, that's what he means when he says, come boldly to the throne of grace. Now, we don't dishonor God. We don't come before him arrogantly or haphazardly or, or you know, in a cocky way. Uh, we come humi in humility, but there is, like John said, a confidence that we can have that if I am praying according to the will of God, God hears my prayers. And we can make requests and demands based upon that, all right? Now, let's quickly, let's go to prayer number four, and that is the prayer of thanksgiving, the prayer of thanksgiving. Now, the, the Greek word for this is uh, eucharista. Uh, let me spell it for you. It's E-U-C-H-A-R-I-S-T-A. Eucharista. You might have heard, if you've been in a traditional church where they had the Eucharist, okay, it was a type of prayer that they were offering in the service. You might hear it in a Catholic church and so forth. What this means in the Greek language is literally good and grace. Good and grace. It, 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 it's good and because it's it's wonderful, it's good sentiments that are coming up up out of my heart, and it evokes grace. Okay. Now, somebody tell me, when you sit down to eat, what is it that you've heard people say? Uh, will you say what? Grace. Grace. Okay. This is where this came from. Is this? Greek word, eucharista. In other words, uh, you know, that's what we mean when we say, say grace. We're, it's actually a prayer of thanksgiving, okay? Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. You don't have to turn there, just, just listen. Paul said this, Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you. I, I say grace over you, all right, making mention of you in my prayers. In other words, Paul was saying this, my feelings for you are so strong and cannot be contained, I can't help but thank God for you. You know, I, and, and, you know, not to be corny, but, um, you know, there are many times in my prayer when I'm praying for the people of our church, I feel the same thing that Paul must have felt when he said that. Uh, there's something that rises up out of my spirit, out of the love for the people, 
and mm -hmm. I give thanks for the people. I speak grace and good things over the people that I'm praying for, over our church and so forth, okay? Mm -hmm. Let me give you some other references. Colossians 1.3, just write these down. Colossians 1.3, Paul said, we give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 2, Paul said this, we give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers. And then 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Paul said this, Therefore, I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. So Paul used this same word in reference to praying for those in authority over us, you know, and and. and uh, as you're praying for our leaders, the leaders of our nation, you're praying for our local leaders, you're praying for uh, leaders, your, your bosses at work, so forth and so on. Um, let, that, let the Spirit of God cause that grace and that good to rise up out of your spirit where you're declaring over them and giving thanks for them, all right? That's what the prayer of thanksgiving is all about. Number five is the prayer of supplication. Prayer of supplication. Now you hear this mentioned in the New Testament. It's the, the Greek word. It's, it's spelled E-N-T-E-U-X-I-S in Tuxis. Okay. And uh, it can be translated in some cases, it can be translated intercession, but it carries the thought of earnest, heartfelt, continued prayer for someone else. Okay. In other words, you cannot pray the prayer of supplication for yourself. You can only pray this prayer of supplication for someone else. Okay. You pray the prayer of faith, you pray the prayer of petition. You pray the prayer of consecration, all of those for yourself, but the prayer of supplication, you pray for other people. Now, I heard it said, and we'll talk next in just a moment about the prayer of intercession, but I've heard it said that the prayer of supplication very often is made for fellow believers, people that are already born again, whereas the prayer of intercession is made for people that are not yet born again. Okay, and you'll understand the difference in just a second. But the prayer of supplication, most of the time when Paul especially made reference to the prayer of supplication, it was in reference to praying for other believers, a continued heartfelt prayer for other believers. Okay, a good example of this is James chapter 5 and verse 16, James 5, 16, and let me read it to you. Uh, out of the Amplified, confess to one another, therefore, your faults, your slips, your fault steps, your offenses, and your sins, and pray also for one another, that you may be healed and restored, 
to a spiritual tone of mind and heart, the earnest, heartfelt, continued prayer of a righteous man makes tremendous power available, dynamic in its working. So Paul, again, or James, rather, is using this in a reference towards praying for other believers. Now, let's talk about number six quickly. I'm running out of time, but pray, the prayer of intercession, the prayer of intercession. Now, I'm going to spell this for you, and then I'll pronounce it. The prayer of intercession is from the Greek word E-N-T-U-G as in golf, C-H-A-N-O, intuchano. Okay? And this is where, and the reason that this is often referred to in praying for unbelievers is because the, the basic way to translate this is we are standing in the gap between two people and bringing those two people together in prayer. All right, so what does that mean? Well, if we're praying for lost people, lost people obviously need a relationship with Jesus. So when we intercede for the lost, we're standing in the gap praying for them and desiring to bring them in the spirit in contact with their Savior, with the Lord Jesus, okay? And so uh, very often when you're praying the prayer of intercession, now I know, okay, let me just say this. I know very often in times past, and maybe you've heard this, you know, in recent history, where um, very often a prayer meeting at church will be called intercessory prayer, okay? Well, it's not really intercessory prayer in the sense of, there might be other types of prayer that are happening. It's just that's the label that we've put on it, and we're not necessarily praying for the lost. Now, if you're going and you're going to pray for the lost, then it's intercessory prayer, okay? And you're, there are examples. You know, one of the greatest examples, we won't turn there for the sake of time, but do you remember when Abraham interceded on the behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah? You remember where he prayed and he said, Lord, if there are 50 righteous in the city— Will you spare the city? And God said, yes. And so Abraham had God all the way down to 10 people, okay? And yet there weren't 10 people in the cities, and the cities weren't spared. But but Abraham was able to uh, rescue Lot and his family, okay? Now, there are going to be times when you pray for lost people. Now, I've heard other people say, and I've sensed this before as I've been praying, you might get so deep into intercessory prayer that you almost begin to feel lost yourself. And what is happening is, is you're standing in the gap for that lost person so much that you're in the spirit picking up on what they are experiencing spiritually. And this is all by and through the Holy Spirit, okay? So when you're praying, very often praying in other tongues, praying in the spirit for someone who is lost, and you're interceding for them, it is where you're standing in the gap, endeavoring to uh, delay trouble from them, maybe, uh, you know, keep them from experiencing judgment, whatever the case might be, you're interceding on their behalf to stop that, okay? Now, um, in Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25, just again, make a note of this. The Bible says, therefore, 
Jesus is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So when you are praying the prayer of intercession, you're hooking up with Jesus because the Bible says that Jesus ever lives to make intercession for people as well. Okay. So that's what the prayer of intercession is all about. Now, real quick, I want to wrap this up and I want to give you, um, make a note of Romans 8, 26, Romans 8, 26. And, uh, that's the scripture says this, likewise, the spirit also helps us in our weaknesses for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings, which cannot be uttered. Now, what's interesting that that Greek word that I told you just a little bit ago into Kano, um, this is the Greek word. If you take that same word and add Hooper, H-U-P-E-R, in front of it. It's where we get our English word hyper from, okay? So in other words, hooper into kano is the Greek word that is translated intercession in Romans 8.26. Now, what's interesting is this is the only time in the entire New Testament that this word is used. So it, it is a very unique and very special word. And what this word means is that the Holy Spirit, and we've taught on this, and I don't have time to get into great detail on it, but it talks about how the Holy Spirit, when you are praying for the perfect will of God for your life, the Holy Spirit will hook up with you and, and pray with you regarding circumstances, um, situations in your life, and he shares in those things with you in order to get you out of those situations. So what happens is when you find yourself in a difficult place, if you will spend time praying in the Spirit, the Holy Spirit will hook up with you and initiate a rescue plan in the Spirit to get you out of that difficult situation. And that's how he makes intercession for us. Okay? All right? So I, I wish I could spend more time on that. I just don't have time tonight. Let me hit number seven real quick. And this is the prayer of worship. The prayer of worship. And you can say the prayer of praise and worship. Okay? The prayer of praise and worship. Now, we've been teaching a little bit of, on, uh, on Sundays about this. Um, I've heard it said, Brother Hagin said this. I've heard other people say this, that the prayer of praise and worship is the highest type of prayer. All the other prayers are great. All the other prayers are necessary and important, but this is the highest kind of prayer. Now, this word, prayer of worship, the word worship in the New Testament comes from the Greek word proskuneo, and let me spell it for you. It's P-R-O-S-K-U-N-E-O. -E now, I'm going to define it for you, and it's going to sound weird, but, but listen. The simple definition of the word for worship is this, to kiss the hand like a dog would lick the hand of his master. 
Isn't that, isn't that unusual? But that's what that word means. It means to kiss the hand like a dog would lick the hand of its master. In other words, you're so um, loving and worshipful to, to the Lord when you're worshiping him that is just like that dog. You know, one thing that people often note about dogs is, is this. If you've ever had a pet dog, they love unconditionally, mm-hmm. you know, and they will, um, you know, just fall all over you and, and, you know, lick you and so forth and so on. Well, let's, let, I tell you what, let's look at one last verse and go with me to John chapter four. And, and this is going to make this scripture come alive to you. John chapter four, verses 23 and 24. John 4, verses 23 and 24. Jesus said this. Now that he's having his conversation with the woman at the well, and he said this, but the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship. That's this word, proskuneo, will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. So my point is this, this this prayer of praise and worship, this prayer of worship is much more intimate and deep than I think we have often realized that it is. In the sense of, if you think about how, um, you know, a dog lovingly comes and just licks the hand of his master just because he loves that master, um, that's the way Jesus said that is the attitude that we're to have in our worship towards God, and that's the kind of worshipers that God is looking for. Now, why is that? Um, is God on some kind of ego trip that he has to have us treat him like that? Is God so insecure that he needs us to constantly be giving him attaboys and high fives? No, no, no. Far from that. Okay. What God knows and what he wants us to know is that when we enter into that level of worship is when we begin to experience his manifest presence in our lives, and he can do more for us because he wants to do more for us. It's it's during those intimate times of praise and worship in our prayer that God will reveal himself, he will make himself known to us, and he will manifest himself to us. You know, I'm often reminded about the examples in the Old Testament when uh, the temple was dedicated, when Solomon's temple was dedicated. And, and all they knew to do was gather all the musicians and the singers and the worshipers together, all the everybody that was everybody in that brand new temple, and all they knew to say over and over and over again was, for the Lord is good and his mercy endures forever. And the Bible says that after they did that, that the presence of God entered the temple to such a degree that it came in 
like a cloud and basically knocked everybody over. It, that the people could not could no longer stand to minister. Now again, God isn't looking for us to you know have to stroke his ego. No, God wants to manifest himself to us, but we're mm. going to have to do it his way, okay? Mm. And the way we're going to do that and experience that is when we pray and we worship the way he wants us to worship, okay? All right. Did you get anything out of this tonight? Yeah. Thanks once again for tuning in to the Spring Hill Church podcast. We hope that you have been blessed by today's message. If you would like more information about the church, please feel free to visit us at springhill.cc.